Every once in a while, as a parent, you get an insight as to whether or not your values are being passed down from generation to generation. So it was with great joy that as our youngest daughter was negotiating her Afikoman present about a month ago, she asked for a game with the Braves, just mommy and daddy alone to take her to a Braves game. So the Braves were in town this week. We went to the Mets uh, Monday afternoon. Rifki and I uh, took her out of school and as a rabbi, it's just a dream. It's just one long sermon, everything that happens. <laughs> right when we got there, uh, we had these great seats between uh, home plate and third base, just high up enough in the first section uh, to be in perfect foul ball uh, situated. And sure enough, in the, in the first couple innings, a foul ball comes directly towards it. And as soon as it leaves the bat, I said to them, I said, this one's headed towards us. And, and it landed literally two seats in front of us. Uh, and it was, I guess it's been so long since I've been to a game in our six years in Montreal, I forget how hard and fast it comes in. You hear the whiz of the ball as it's slicing through the air and it crashes right into the guy sitting these two seats in front of us who was trying to catch with his bare hands and thinking like, it, it's a, there's a reason the players wear gloves. And right away, our, you know, our daughter turns to me and she said like, that was scary. And I was like, yeah, don't worry, I'll protect you next time. And, and sure enough, uh, just a few innings later, another one comes our way. But this one was a little bit off to the left, about 10, 15 seats to our left, directly in our row. And I could tell right away off the bat, this one was not going to go near us. But I had a great spot for what took place. It was headed straight to a couple, a retired couple, I would have guessed, in their mid-60s, early 70s, spending a lovely afternoon at the ballpark together. And, and generally, when the, the rule is when a foul ball comes to you, you're supposed to do one of two things. Either you stand up to catch it, or you get out of the way. And this couple froze. They didn't move. They're just watching the ball and it's headed directly towards them, whizzing through the air. And literally right as it gets to them, she lets out a shriek, goes, ah! And it lands smack in the middle of her lap. But it was her lucky day because she had brought a big, poofy, pocketbook, like one of those pocketbooks made out of the material they make winter coats that we use in Montreal out of. And it was, her pocketbook was in her lap and the ball lands right on the bag and dies right there. No bounce, just sitting right there in her lap. And they're frozen. They're like, you can't believe they're like looking down and, and there's this ball. Well, there's another unwritten rule for fans going to baseball games that if there's a ball that has not been claimed, a foul ball into the stands, it's fair game. Anybody can grab it. So there are these two guys in their 30s sitting right behind this couple. And while the ball is sitting in her lap, one of them just instinct, just he saw a ball. He reaches over, literally takes the ball off her lap and then begins the traditional foul ball celebration. He, he stands up and he, he, he holds the ball up high over his head. He high fives his buddy. And then, <laughs> and then you can see this wave of recognition flash across his face of, did I just, did I just do that? Did I just take that ball off this woman's lap? And she's looking back up at her from his seat. And she's like, her face says the same thing. Like, did you? Did you really, did you just take that ball from me? And, and the whole stadium, and he's for sure on television holding this ball that he's like, oh, no. And then he very sheepishly hands, hands the ball to her with this look of, I, 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 think, I, think, this is, I think this is yours. <laughs> this great scene of teshuva in front of everybody. And it's this moment of recognition of, it was just an instinct. 
I, if I would have thought, I never would have done that. But, but I, just, I just, you know, right away, I just acted. And now I'm holding this ball that I should not be holding. And I have to return it to you. Hold on to that vision for a moment. I want to come back to it because there was something else really important that happened at the game that day. And this is, as a rabbi, was a really important decision that I was faced with as we were preparing to go to the game. And that is, what should I wear to this baseball game? Because there are these two major identities that I have. On the one hand, a Jew, a rabbi no less. And I'm also a Braves fan. And what am I supposed to wear as I go to City Field, home of the New York Mets? And I'm still a little out of town attitude. I didn't know how much I wanted to identify myself as anything other than a local. So I decided, I, I did take off the, the tie and jacket, but I just put on a sweatshirt and a coat is a little chilly and a nondescript baseball hat. And I went incognito to this game and re, and and regretted it literally the moment the moment I got there. Now, my my Jewishness probably shown forth. I don't know how much of that was hidden. Still had tzitzes stucking out of my coat. And, you know, the face is just is as Jewish as they come. It's just the way that it's going to be. But as soon as we walked in, I discovered there were quite a lot of Braves fans wearing their Braves gear, jerseys, hats, and the works. And every time I saw one, I was thinking, I'm, I'm like you. I'm from Atlanta. I'm a Braves fan. But you can't, you can't really say that. It's like a weird thing to sort of say. Now, as Jews, we have something like that. I'm sure many of you have experienced. It's called, there's a term for it. It's called bageling, where a Jew who's not identifiable as a Jew sees another Jew who is identifying very openly and publicly as a Jew. And then the nondescript Jew wants, he senses that he, that's, that's his people. And he wants you to know that he's part of the tribe. So he'll like walk past you on a Tuesday morning and say like, Mazel Tov, or Bar Mitzvah, just to say some word or phrase that lets you know, as the identifiable Jew, that he too is a member of the tribe. And it's a deep, deep desire that we have to identify with who we really are. And I really experienced this for the first time because as a Jew, I'm usually pretty identifiable, but as a Braves fan, nobody knew. And I was just a New York fan, but I really wanted to be part of the Braves crowd. And I was stuck in no man's land. And then finally, when the Braves scored a couple of runs and we got up to cheer with everybody else, all the other Braves fans standing around are like, oh, yeah, oh, you're one of us. But, you know, they gave us that look that said, you're not really one of us because you were too afraid to wear your true colors. So like, all right, they sort of accepted us, but we, ne- we weren't really in This idea is a powerful need that we have to identify with whatever groups we want to, and it's hard if we're not fully taken in, and it's really at the centerpiece of one of the most dramatic scenes at the end of our parasha. The Torah tells us of a mekalel, a Jew who curses Hashem. The Torah tells us very little about what happened. It tells us who this person was. He was the son of a Jewish woman, Shlomit Bastivri, from the tribe of Dun, but his father was an Egyptian. And Chazal actually traced this Egyptian to the very same Egyptian that Moshe Rabbeinu had killed back in Mitzrayim. And so you have here a child of a single parent, a woman from the tribe of Dun, and gets into a fight. And the result of the fight is he curses God. But the Torah doesn't tell us much. And Rashi fills us in a number of interpretations, one of which is that this actually was a fight over where to pitch his tent. 
And this Jew, when he wanted to pitch his tent, went to the tribe of Dun because that's all he knew in life. His mother was from Dun. He never had a father that he ever knew. Indeed, his father was Egyptian anyways. All of his first cousins were from the tribe of Dun. That's what he knows. That's where he went to school. That's where his whole setup is. So he came to pitch his tent in Dun. And the people of Dun, some of them certainly said to him, you actually don't uh, belong with us. You're not, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be somewhere else. And he said, where, where should I go? And they said, well, tribal status, where you pitch your tent is based on, base Avosam is based on a father's tribe. And your father's not from Dun. So he said, I know my father's an Egyptian. So my mother's from Dun. This is where I grew up. And they said, I, I understand, but your father has to be here in order for you to be here. So you don't belong. So he said, well, where should I go? They said, I, I, I don't know, but that, that's, that's not our problem. See, he took them to Moshe's court. He took them to Din. And he said to Moshe Rabbeinu, I, I should be in Dun. That's where my mother's from. And Moshe, in his role at this point as a Dayan, as a judge, said to him, well, the reality is, it says in the Pasuk, base Avosam, it goes based on your father's tribal status and your father's not from Dun. So you actually don't, you don't belong there. So he said, where should I go? And there was no immediate response as to where he actually belonged. Now, what probably should have happened is the tribe of Dun or some other tribe should have said, even though you don't have a right to be here, we'll give up piece of our land, which is a big deal because it was going to affect their land in the land of Israel and we'll let you in. But that was beyond what was required. And this Jew walked out of Moshe's court and had nowhere to go, no place to be. And he walks out and he curses God. And Chaim Shmulevitz and others discuss how a person can go from the greatest heights to the lowest depths so quickly to come out. This is a Jew who experienced Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. He experienced the splitting of the sea. He experienced all of those miracles. How could he come out and curse God? Because he had no place. He had nowhere where he belonged. He didn't have a, put, a place to put his hat to say, this is my home. And when a person doesn't have a home, doesn't have a place, he has nothing. He's left with nothing. You know, this very week, the U.S. Surgeon General came out with his report, an 80-some-odd page report on what he believes is the greatest machal of the biggest epidemic that the U.S. population is facing right now. And it's a little bit surprising because it's not some of the things that we might have thought. He understands it to actually be loneliness. That loneliness is the greatest threat to the American people right now. And he quoted statistics, fascinating statistics, that first of all, only 47% of Americans are currently belonging to some type of religious, either church, synagogue, or mosque, which is the first time in the history of statistics that they followed the U.S. population that's been under 50%. It was at 70% just 20 years ago. And that is a place of connection. It's a place where chevra is developed, a place where a person belongs and feels like he has a place to go. And half of the U.S. population no longer has it. And he quoted statistics that the sense of loneliness has the same statistical impact on a person's life in terms of shortening a person's life as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It is the same danger to a person's health. Feeling and being lonely as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Those are the statistics. And social media is exacerbating the situation. That which is supposed to really connect people, but it's just creating a terrible sense of isolation and loneliness. And the more hours that a person is on social media a day directly correlates to their feelings of, se- of loneliness, which is correlated to deter- deter- deteriorating uh, health. This week, 
This week, this month really in the U.S. is Mental Health Awareness Month and many shuls have adopted this particular first Shabbos in May as a Mental Health Awareness Shabbos. And I originally wasn't sure I wanted to address it. My first year here, I have no idea what kind of sensitive nerves I might touch upon. I'm, I'm still getting to know everybody and I didn't necessarily want to address it. But I had a very difficult week. This was a week in which I spent a day in Atlanta paying a shiva call to a family that was members of mine when I was in Atlanta and uh, who lost a son this week, a 24-year-old young man who took his life, a formal student of mine in the yeshiva where I taught when I was there, who suffered from what turned out to be a very lethal combination of homosexual... He, he was homosexual and he suffered from mental illness. And a uh, sweet boy, a full, really, of smiles and laughter, and was well incorporated into the community. And I know there are many articles that have been written about him already from many people with specific agendas who want to paint a certain picture of which I do not want to get involved because there's all situations like this. Tragic, tragic situations. So much pain and so nuanced as to what's going on. I just have one message that I needed to share, particularly on this Shabbos, and that is the sense of belonging that it is obligated upon us as a community to make sure that every member of our community feels a part of our community, mental health specifically. Mental health is an area in which we have a gut reaction. The gut reaction as a community is to put our heads in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. Or even worse, sometimes to shun a particular family or even worse, an individual suffering from particular uh, illnesses, struggles that they might have within the mental health world. And just, we don't want to deal with it. We pretend it's as if it's not there. And that, that sense is the sense of the gut reaction of grabbing a baseball off of someone's lap and then you end up holding it later and you're like, oh, I'm not supposed to have done that. The sense of loneliness, of not belonging, of wanting to identify with the community and not being allowed to or not being fully taken in because you're not wearing the right jersey or didn't wear what you were supposed to or do what you were supposed to is a sense of tremendous isolation and loneliness. And that is the worst feeling in the world. It's a dangerous feeling as we now come to understand. And it's our job as a community to embrace, to make sure that every member of our community feels that they have a place. Not everyone in our community is perfect. I know, I know most of us, of course, are, but not everyone. Not everyone has squeaky clean closets without anything in there that they wouldn't want other people to know about. And those who have, so we all have, we all know that. We cannot allow any member of our community to feel like they don't belong because of whatever it is that they have or might be struggling with. And this is a sensitive, complicated discussion on so many ways. But it's our job to make sure that everyone feels welcome, that they have a place, that they belong, that it should never be that we end up holding a baseball in our hand in a moment of tragedy when we say, oh, it was just a gut reaction that I did whatever I did. I know I shouldn't have done that. I don't want to be holding that ball, knowing that I shouldn't be when someone else is suffering. And this is not just a drush about loneliness. It's real. There are tragedies which are taking place around us as a result of suffering that is taking place. And this is just an awareness. I don't have an, a, an action item. I'm not, I don't know. It's so complicated what to do. But the first step is that as a community as a whole, that we take 
specifically pay attention and actions to making sure that everyone in our community feels like they have a place and that they belong, that we should never be caught holding that ball in our, ha- in our hands when it shouldn't be there, that somebody didn't feel like they were welcomed or that they belonged.